Welcome to Between the Lines, everyone. Um, we're going to be talking about grammar today. Very excited. And we have our first guest to appear on our podcast, uh, Thomas Rowe. He's taught Latin literature, grammar, and history in classical schools since graduating from Hillsdale College in 2011. He is currently a faculty recruiter at Valor Education and wrote his master's thesis, Sonnets on Sticks, an Apologia for Sentence Diagramming in Classical Education, as part of an MA at the University of Dallas. Uh, we're so happy to have you here with us, Thomas. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So we're going to talk about grammar and diagramming today. And where I thought we could start is just by having you make the case for why grammar is still relevant. Um, I'm not sure our audience will need much convincing, but, you know, there is a school out there that suggests grammar is arbitrary and old fashioned. And, you know, if you go out into the workforce these days, um, who, who's going to check your grammar and care about whether you have proper punctuation? Um, and besides, you've got tools like Grammarly and ChatGPT to, to compensate for you anyway. So where would you start making the case for why it's still important to teach grammar and why it's uh, an important part maybe of any child's education? Yeah, absolutely. I think there are, there are a couple ways to to go about that. I think first, it's probably pretty important to to think about what is grammar, right? Um, so we can think about it as the rules and things we learn about language and how to employ it. Um, I think it's really helpful to to consider, at least for the ancient Greeks um, and and Romans, that you know grammar is the the start of education and language, and it's always for the sake of reading the great authors. I think that really matters, especially if you look at somebody like Cicero and his Proarchia saying, like, why do we have poetry? Why do we have writing? And the great good that's imparted to us in terms of exemplars of how to live, in terms of philosophy, in terms of how to order our lives. Um, I think that's really important not to lose sight of. Because I know as, as, as a child myself, you know, I tell me grammar, I think, oh, exercises, things I've got to get done. But, but keeping in mind the, the whole view, and that really ties us into the fact that we are, as human beings, uh, the Logos creature, right? We're the ones that have this rich language tradition. So grammar is absolutely essential in terms of orienting ourselves towards who we really are, right? Creatures of words who use words. So absolutely knowing how to do that well ourselves in order to speak clearly, in order to participate in this tradition of literature really matters. So when it comes to things like Grammarly or, you know, ChatGPT or something like that, um, I guess my question is, yeah, why would, why would you want to lose your birthright? Why would you want <laughs> to give up something that you could have for yourself? Uh, again, going back to Cicero, he's got a, a great passage in a dialogue where he talks about, you know, all the goods we really have are the things we have inside of ourselves, right? Those are the things that we can't be taken from us. So it's why we learn poems by heart, right? They, they dwell in us. So I think the more that we know about language personally, the better. That's a really important point. And I think, I think it gets to a, the heart of um, maybe the wrong way of looking at education in general that some folks have, right? Phrasing it as why not just use Grammarly in G or GPT kind of misses the point um, because that assumes that all of education is for some practical purpose of just like how you're going to perform 
a particular skill in a job, right? Writing a particular email versus I think what you're getting at is grammar helps shape your mind and give you the ability to acquire knowledge and just understand your own mind a little bit. Is that, am I getting the, the right point from you on, on what you were trying to say? Yeah, absolutely. So, right, for, for the medievals, certainly you have grammar understood as part of the trivium, right? Grammar, logic, and rhetoric, uh, and then the quadrivium. Uh, and together they form the seven liberal arts, right? So um, when we think about the liberal arts, uh, they're the ones designed to make a man free. They're the ones befitting a, a free man. And so there, there are a couple places that I would look to that I think are really illuminating in very different ways about why do we learn and the purpose of education. Um, one is, is a comment that uh, Sister Miriam Joseph makes in her book, The Trivium which is that most arts are transitive. They, they start and they go out and they shape an object. Um, but the liberal arts are reflexive. They have their beginning and their end in us, right? So they are shaping us. We're the thing both being worked upon and doing the working. I think that's really important. Um, and the other, the other place, this is a little bit farther afield, but I, I just read for the first time, uh, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, uh, recounting his experience in the concentration camps. And he speaks mm. extensively about who are the people who survived. And he says, you know, it's not the ones who came in who are physically strongest. It was the ones who had the ability to uh, have an inner life, a rich inner life that was resistant to the horrors around them. Um, I, I do think that we tend to lose sight of our own formation as human persons and our own interior life. And that's something that the liberal arts do give us access to. And, and grammar is at the start of the liberal arts path. Now, I'm pretty new to the classical world. And um, I, I was recently doing a module on grammar in the trivium. And one thing I found really interesting to learn about is I had always thought about grammar in terms of parts of speech and kind of learning that and then learning diagramming and how, how words relate to one another. But one of the things they talked about in this module was they kind of took a step back and defined grammar in a different way. It was more about how to use your words accurately, right? It was, it was kind of the development of accuracy of mind and the study of language in, in, um, uh, being able to understand meaning and, Part of the context was, you know, being able to, let's say, interpret what somebody meant when they were writing in Latin and translating that. And I'm curious how the subject of grammar has changed or, or whether there's different definitions of it from what a modern grammar lesson might look like versus how the term grammar is used in the trivium. Is there a difference? Are they the same thing? Um, do we mean something different when we talk about studying grammar nowadays? That's that's a great question, and um, I, I cannot at all claim to be a, an expert of the the whole history of the development of grammar. <laughs> but I did learn learn a lot more when I was was looking into um, looking into it as part of part of my MA thesis. And one of the things that struck me was um, it's relatively recent that you have uh, the first English grammar book. I want to say Henry VIII's reign, maybe Elizabeth's. Uh, I think it's Henry VIII. So we're talking 1500s. Um, so you think, well, English has been around for longer than that. Um, 
what was going on with grammar education before that? Well, it was all <laughs> Latin. <laughs> so you, you just weren't doing education in English grammar. Um, so one of the things that struck me when I was looking at these early grammars of the English language is they were very word oriented as opposed to sentence or clause oriented. So that kind of makes sense when you look at a lot of Latin studies are emphasizing parsing and making sure we understand the word endings because Latin's a highly inflected language. Um, so you see initially in English grammar books, they, they, they follow that pattern very closely. Uh, so we're parsing and we're, you know, here's the section on participles and here's the section on, you know, the, the declension of pronouns. And it looks very, very similar in structure. Um, you do see uh, a bit of a shift in the 1800s towards what I would call sentence grammar, where it's much more focused on how do these parts relate to each other. And it's around the same time that you start here uh, among writers of English grammar textbooks, uh, a lot of emphasis on uh, the, the science of language. Um, which really maps on, this would be maybe something for later in the conversation, but maps on to some movements in kind of the, the, the model of the, the starts in Germany of the, the research university and, and picks up steam. So it's, it's kind of a, a long winded response, I'm afraid to say, yeah, that what grammar is conceived of as being does shift quite a bit. And maybe a, a standard grammar book, I don't, I don't know if they teach grammar uh, extensively in the public schools, um, but say, <laughs> You know, the, the inherited whatever generation of, of grammar book you think of has come from the 50s, 60s, 70s on up to the present, whatever that is, I would guess that probably today looks much more like mechanics um, and proofreading mm. is, is my okay. guess. Um, yeah. So there there's definitely a change over time. Now, I wonder, you touched on something really interesting. How much of that change is due to the nature of the language that's being spoken? So you mentioned Latin's very inflective. So you you have to analyze the words and to, to extract the meaning versus um, you just have to do something different when you're analyzing English and trying to be um, be uh, accurate with your language there. So so is it that the essence of the subject's the same? You know, you're dealing with accuracy of mind and language. It's just how that looks depends on the the actual language you're using, whether it's English or Latin, um, or do you think they've shifted for other reasons? Yeah, I would, I would say, you know, English hasn't really changed that much, right? Since Shakespeare, right? You compare, you know, a hundred years prior to Shakespeare with Shakespeare, and that's a, a radical change, right? Just immense, immense development from Middle English to, to Shakespeare as early modern English. And then since then, you know, words come in and out, but, but our spelling and our, our structures have, have really been quite the same. So I don't think there's a lot of language development. And from a language standpoint of, of Latin and English, in one sense, Latin is more analytical, but, you know, uh, the late Reginald Foster, you know, always said, you know, every every dog catcher and, and bum in, in Rome could speak Latin, so you can too. I think hmm. there's a lot of wisdom there, right? We learn language the same way. Um, but when you step back, not to learn the language, but now to think about the language that you've learned, then Latin and English do have substantial differences in that Latin leans more heavily on word endings for meaning and English leans more heavily on word order for meaning. Uh, so I, I do think 
that if you're going to sit down and study them with English, it makes a lot of sense to be looking at the sentence level, at the clause level. Um, but one of the advantages of something like sentence diagramming is that it would visualize for you the function of a noun by putting it in a specific place. Whereas Latin, you would have a pretty good sense, oh, that's an object because of the ending that's on the word. Mm. Can I ask a, a quick historical question about that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so you were saying that the so this formal study of Latin grammar preceded the formal study of English grammar. And is that because Latin was what was being spoken in schools? Or is that because Latin was being spoken generally? I'm just intrigued by no. this idea that we could be speaking a language and just sort of unreflectively doing it. But then we have this other language that everyone knows is formal and structured. So I'd just love mm -hmm. to hear a little bit more about that historical background. Yeah, I guess backing up to the ancient world, uh, you certainly have both, right? People are going around speaking Latin, speaking Greek, and you've got ancient grammarians, right? Dionysius, Thra Dionysius Thrax and uh, Donatus and others, right, are, are people whose native languages are Latin and Greek who are writing grammars about Latin and Greek. So you've got this delightful uh, dialogue between, uh, let me see if I can find it here. Um, there's a dialogue that is written, um, yeah, by Donatus called the Ars Grammatica, and it starts out with, uh, de partibus orationes, about the parts of speech, mm -hmm. and it's written as a dialogue back and forth between the teacher and the <laughs> student. How many parts of speech are there? Eight. What are they? The noun, oh. the pronoun, the verb, you know, he goes on and on. So the ancients are writing, you know, they're, they're definitely self-aware. They're writing grammar books. Um, when it comes to why so late for English grammar, I, I don't have a good answer. I can give guesses, right, that, you know, post-Norman conquest, uh, the, the stock of English has fallen pretty low, right? It's not the, the court language for the, for the Angevins, right? So it's, it's going to be French that's spoken there. Um, I, I, my guess is it's just not viewed as really meriting a grammar until much later. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. It's so fascinating. Um, so I think the, the kind of narrative I'm hearing on how to think about this is, and I really like that quote you brought up about, um, in a misconception of Latin's difficulty, right? You can, mm -hmm. if you learn to speak a language, you're implicitly speaking it grammatically correct, right? You couldn't be coherent if, um, you weren't, if you weren't capable of speaking grammatically until you had learned explicit grammar. So there's an element of grammar that's embedded in language as you're speaking it. And the study of grammar is learning what you're already able to do, but being explicit about it, identifying the parts of speech, for example, and their relationship to one another. And I'm curious if, um, before we talk about sentence diagramming, if you could elaborate on what you th think the value is. So if you're a child and you, you, you've learned to speak, we're now suggesting that you should take this next step of learning to be explicit about how you use language. Mm -hmm. And what do you think that does to your mind? How does that change your perspective on the world or, you know, change your ability to absorb knowledge? Do you think there's a case there? And, and can you make any um, arguments for, for why that should be important to a person? Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, I guess I would start with uh, with what you said about um, right. You you learn to speak correctly by speaking. I, I think that's true. I think that it isn't all by nature, of course, right? That so, you know, our parents correct us when we when we misspeak. So you know, lately with with my own young children, it's no, no, not we go there. We we went there. Um, <laughs> so why do we do that, right? Because that can certainly you know get into nitpickiness, and you know, uh, very. Uh, I'll include myself in the category of grammar snoots, right? We all have our our hobby horses and things, but like, when does that cross a line? Is it at split infinitives that you're, you know, being more of a pest than a help? Or is it, you know, what, whatever it is, I think all of that really, though, it's important to bring it back to, well, like, what's the spirit behind both our correction? And what's the spirit behind learning grammar? And I, I think it has to be love, out of love for the other, and the desire to communicate clearly. Um, Brief aside, Joseph Pieper's abuse of language, abuse of power is just beautiful in in calling out we speak language in order to convey truth. So I'd say at its deepest level, we should be learning grammar because we want to know the truth and speak the truth. So when it comes to something like a close reading of a poem, right, we want to know exactly what does he mean? Is does the and join this part to this part or Who's being described by this modifying clause? And so a knowledge of grammar, of antecedents and such, is immensely important. Um, in, a, in his book, uh, How to Read a Book, Mortimer Adler um, has this great aside about how, you know, we, we tend to be lazy readers. But I'll guarantee you there's one time when you're going to read something really well, and that's a love letter. You're going to go over that every <laughs> other way to figure out every possible meaning. And I think the more we can fall in love with the things that we want to read, right, whether it's poetry or philosophy, the more we're going to read it like that. We're going to read it over and over until we understand. And grammar is a tool. It's a lens to help us understand, which is, I think, why the ancients said, well, yes, there's parts of speech and all that. That's grammar. But grammar keeps going because grammar culminates in reading the poets and reading them rightly. So it's almost like on a matter of principle, if you're somebody that cares about truth, um, you you almost will find a compulsion to want to learn grammar, right? I, I could definitely see that. Like there there are many things in life where once you you see the path towards doing it well, you can't help yourself but walk towards it. And um, if yeah, I, if you acknowledge words have meaning and mm -hmm. and when somebody expresses themselves, they mean something specifically well. Uh, you want to be able to interpret that. But also, I think just to uh, maybe make a pitch for why somebody that maybe has a more progressive school of thought would want to learn grammar too, is if you also want to be able to express yourself, not just interpret others, but if you want your meaning to be understood as precisely as possible, a study of grammar helps that too, right? It, it helps tune your mind to be, to, to, um, express your own identity in the clearest terms. Yeah, I think, again, it, yeah, it comes back to willing the good of the other. And so even if, if one's ambition is to express oneself, one wants to be heard, right? And, and comprehended. And, and grammar serves that end. Yeah, and I think that's just um, an interesting opportunity to point out a common misconception. I hear a lot in education these days that being able to express oneself is almost like an innate skill. You just need to practice it. And 
what I'm hearing in in the value of grammar and the role of grammar is it's a tool that enables self-expression. And without it, um, you actually wouldn't be able to express yourself as clearly. So it's kind of like the prerequisite you need before that. Um, I'd be curious to maybe shift gears a little bit to to something like sentence diagramming um, and maybe talk a little bit about ways to learn grammar and, and sentence grammar, sentence diagramming, certainly a tool. Curious what, what your first exposure to sentence diagramming was, what you like about it, why you think it's a valuable tool, and and then we can get maybe into some of the alternatives. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I first encountered uh, sentence diagramming uh, as a homeschooler. My mom uh, used used curriculum mm. that had it involved, and I I remember it being you know kind of a, a fun puzzle, a game. You know, you did it, um, and then probably by you know somewhere in middle school, I wasn't doing it anymore, and. And then I, I was in college and I had uh, I had picked up Latin for the first time and was really enjoying Latin and, uh, you know, realizing a lot of things about English grammar through the study of, of Latin that I never realized before. And that was all really neat. And then a, uh, a, a great professor of ours, uh, Dr. Dan Copeland at Hillsdale, um, was offering a class on grammar. And... Uh, my wife had just taken the class the semester before and said, this, this was really great. You should do it. Hmm. said, ah, oh, I've got time to do this. This sounds fun. And it was fantastic. It was, you know, refreshing my mind on all these things that I had, I had really enjoyed, you know, in elementary or early middle school. And, uh, but also having just come off of learning Latin and it was just, it was a really great double whammy of, uh, of seeing, I guess, seeing things I had just taken for granted. Uh, in mm-hmm. terms of the relationships between words, um, and I really, really loved that semester. And so then, um, yeah, it was towards the end of my time in college, and I, I went right into teaching. And uh, I was was really blessed to get to teach both Latin and uh, literature and composition. So then I I had a lot more exposure to diagramming uh, as a as a teacher. And one of the things that uh, I certainly saw was that it does encourage you to account for each word because mm. it requires you to do something with each word. So what, um, how do you, where do you see diagramming as being the most valuable? Um, is it, would you start children, you know, is that their introduction to, to grammar? Is you start by having them diagram sentences? Where do you see diagramming fitting into an education? Yeah, this is a great question. I don't think I would start a student there. Certainly. Um, it's, uh, Hmm. It's similar to, uh, I suppose it's similar in a certain sense to translation. Um, you know, when, whenever I hear somebody saying um, for Latin, well, we're we're translating this passage and that's how we're uh, we're learning to understand the author. Um, there's something in me that says, oh, that be hesitant there. Right. Um, we need to understand in order to translate. We, we can't translate in order to understand. Right. Comprehension has to come first. Analogously with grammar, uh, if all you're doing is uh, saying, oh, diagramming, you know, this is your introduction uh, to grammar, then students will fall into just put words in places on the diagram without understanding them. And that that, mm. that would not be effective. So there has to be a, a prior understanding of the parts of speech uh, before you can get to uh, what I would call the parts of sentence. So diagramming is is a great lens for seeing how the parts of a sentence fit together, um, but it, it's not where you would want to to start your your grammar education. That said, 
Uh, what diagramming really does very, very beautifully um, is it offers a lens. It, again, like I said, it forces us to consider the details uh, and to ask us questions, to ask ourselves questions, because when we have to account for each word, we have to really look at it. Um, and so in a, in a way, I suppose it's, uh, it's kind of like if you're doing Euclidean geometry, right? You've got these beautiful proofs. Um, they help us to visualize something, the proofs themselves, the, the diagrams Euclid drew, that's not the truth of his geometry. It's the representation of the truth of it. In the same way, what a sentence diagram can do for us uh, is represent things, bring them into clarity that weren't there before. So like we mentioned earlier, Latin is really obvious when things a subject or an object most of the time. Uh, English it's not because our words don't change their endings. Well, diagrams gonna, diagramming will bring that into focus by giving us a visual representation. But with every lens, right, the nature of a lens is to either bring something into clarity, um, but when it does that, it takes other things out of clarity, right? Picture, you know, bird watching in the backyard with your binoculars, right? As you spin that wheel, things come in and out of clarity. So you have to ask yourself, too, what are you losing in the clarity? So, for example, you, know, you could diagram a Shakespearean sonnet, which I think can be a really great exercise in understanding parallel structures and seeing things you might have missed. Uh, but that's not going to show you the like the persistent iambic meter. It's mm. it's going to obscure that because its lens gives one strength and takes something else away. That's a really great point. So I think it's important to look at diagramming then as a tool right? It's a, a very helpful tool to um, reinforce certain principles of grammar. And what I'm hearing too, that I've also personally experienced is um, it helps you see the, like literally see the relationships among words, but also by going through the process of diagramming, carefully considering those relationships. And uh, Emily and I were actually, we're doing a, a Bible verse a week as part of um uh, an Instagram a campaign we're doing. And we, we had a good back and forth the other week because we were trying to figure out whether a word was a direct object or a helping verb. And, and it, it, it drastically changed the meaning of the sentence. And I would have completely overlooked it had I not had to ask the question, where on my diagram does it go? And doing that exercise really forced us to even consider that um, treating it as either part of the verb or as a direct object actually changed the intended meaning of this verse uh, and, and and what it was trying to, to tell you. So it was a really fun, fun little exercise. So am I capturing kind of where you see, di see diagramming fitting in and, and some of its essential value at helping you um, see the relationship, but also reinforce being careful about how you relate words? Absolutely. Yeah. I had a similar experience with diagramming a sonnet that um, I had, I was struggling to figure out where to put this word that. And I knew it wasn't a pronoun. I knew it wasn't an adjective. Uh, wasn't it wasn't demonstrative pronoun. wasn't a relative pronoun. It wasn't even an expletive introducing a noun clause. I was racking my brains. What is this doing? Um, and then realized, oh, ultimately, it was uh, a subordinating conjunction introducing introducing an adverbial clause. I was thinking to myself, I didn't know they could do this, <laughs> but it was the only thing that fit. And if I, yeah, if I hadn't been forced to ask the question, I mean, isn't that what a great seminar teacher is going to do too? When you're having a discussion, they're going to ask you 
the question that otherwise you just are going to keep going on your merry way and you're going to end up with a a more superficial reading of something simply by virtue of not being asked the question. Right. So I love this. So in thinking about our overall theme of grammar and the purpose of grammar, if if I like the shorthand of, you know, using it to help us with accuracy of mind, accuracy of what we're intending to say, sentence diagramming sounds like it's this just invaluable tool to be able to visualize what you're trying to say. So you can just bring it external from yourself and see whether, you know, it you're on the right track, but then also the process of diagramming then um, forces you to be careful about your selection. So that that's quite beautiful. Um, now, one thing you were telling me before we hopped on this podcast that I, I found very interesting was to look at um, sentence diagramming in the classical world, because I don't think it's uh, you tend to see it more in the classical education world, but not everyone uh, believes it, it should be used. And one thing I'd love to hear more from you are you, you started telling me about the kinds of people who reject sentence diagramming and kind of their um, the school of thought that they come from and why on the surface it might seem like sentence diagramming is not for classical education, why you think it actually should be part of one. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one one quick thing to throw on there too, uh, before we move on, it is important to know, and this was tragic to me when I found it out, um, not every sentence can be diagrammed, right? Sometimes <laughs> you get to it, you're like, oh no, um, okay. there are things that exceed, but that's actually a good thing. It's a reminder, right? This is a lens, it's a system, and the richness of language exceeds it. So just to throw it out there, not... Not everything can be diagrammed, but that's also a good thing too. It um, it forces us to say, "Oh wow, like here's something that our our language exceeds the ability to to depict this." But jumping over to um, yeah, to the, I guess a little bit of a, a history here. Um, so sentence diagramming, uh, as we know it, uh, really starts with Alonzo Reed and Brainerd Kellogg in America in the 1870s. Uh, so they're they're two teachers at uh, the Brooklyn Polytechnic Institute. They come up with a system. Um, so again, going back to that idea of word grammar versus sentence grammar, they're relatively early in this period that I would call sentence grammar. You've got some uh, some people uh, before them that are starting to do more with let's try and figure out how to group uh, the thoughts as opposed to just the words. Uh, but they come up with this uh, system, which really hasn't changed much to this point. There are simplifications certainly from from their system. But when you hear sentence diagramming, if you have encountered it before and you have this idea of, ah, there's this line and then they divide it and the subject's on the one side, predicate's on the other, and there are these diagonal lines coming off, that's their system. And it, uh, it really is unique to them and has stuck around. So what I think is important to realize about them, and maybe this is behind um, maybe some suspicion of them within the classical education world, uh, is they really are coming out of the mindset that's very much uh, one of enlightenment rationalism, uh, that we can know things with certainty, that um, really that not only can we know things with certainty, which you know folks obviously within, <laughs> within the great tradition would, would agree with, right, that, that reality is knowable, but that the same person will interpret the same data in the same way 
by virtue of being a rational human person. Um, so there's this this epistemic certainty um, that their system really shows that we can use this to understand the, the science of language. Um, and what you see historically, so I, I looked a fair bit at how do people respond to Reed and Kellogg diagrams, uh, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s, up through, up through the present. And what you see is a, a series of sort of phases. First, there's uh, some simplifying of Reed and Kellogg's diagrams. Okay, this works, but let's just make it a little bit easier for folks. Um, but then you start to see a movement towards uh, shifting away gradually from Reed and Kellogg and then outright rejection by the time you get to the 50s, 60s, 70s um, because of a sense that uh, grammar is prescriptive, that we can't have certainty about language, that in fact, language is just competing claims, competing narratives. Uh, and so we shouldn't talk about grammar, English grammar. We should talk about Englishes or varying mm. English grammars and then looking at, you know, grammar as um, as a means of, you know, exercising power and oppression. Um, so if you look at where Reed and Kellogg are and what they say about grammar, it really tracks pretty nicely, I think, with uh, the description that the philosopher Alistair McIntyre makes in his three rival versions of moral inquiry of what he calls encyclopedia after the uh, writers of the ninth edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, of uh, this this certain Enlightenment rationalist school of thought that gets challenged and, and overthrown by what he calls genealogy after Nietzsche's genealogy of morals. So this, yeah, this, this Nietzschean reading of properly coming along and saying, no, the same two people don't come to the same facts and interpret them the same way um, because you have biases that you bring to the table, right? So in in the grammar history, I do see a parallelism here that science diagramming is this product of Enlightenment rationalism uh, that gets a lot of holes poked into it, uh, and many of them justly, especially the, the criticisms of science diagramming uh, from the composition angle. Uh, Reed and Kellogg, the inventors, were very convinced that this is a great way to teach writing. Um, and I don't think it is. And that's, mm. that's been kind of the, uh, one of the major criticisms within the mainstreams of grammar throughout the thirties, forties, fifties. Um, so it's what was interesting to me, long story short is I can see why grammar gets rejected, um, by folks in classical education saying, well, this is this is pretty enlightenment rationalism, which has some some issues with it. Uh, but it's also getting rejected by more of, say, a, a postmodern position. It's just fascinating to me saying, OK, well, where should its position be? And what I would what I would argue is that science diagramming is is immensely helpful. Again, if we take it as a lens, it's one tool among many that can be picked up. Looked through to gain something at the expense of something else and then put down. So we, we recognize that um, it's, it's not going to give us, you know, every single truth about language. And, and maybe, <laughs> maybe its inventors were a little overly optimistic that it might. Um, 
but I think we also have to be cautious of of the other position of saying, well, we, we shouldn't assume we can know anything about language, so let's not employ this. And to me, that's such a good story and example of the importance of trying to approach uh, subjects with, with a little bit of nuance, and, and which is the purpose of this podcast. Because what I'm hearing is that the development of, of sentence diagramming came from this very rationalistic um, school of thought. And at first I was having trouble following, but as soon as you started mentioning how they started, as soon as they discovered this, they started applying it as the end all be all of everything you need to know about language. Then I was like, oh, there's the rationalism. That, that sounds like a rationalist to me, um, to, to just need to get the perfect system and then be able to apply it to every problem. And so the mistake I think you're cautioning on is yes, you can take it too far, but does that mean that it's a completely invalid tool? And the answer is no. And like many things, you know, most human beings are trying to contribute something positively to the world. And so to write somebody off just because they come from a rationalist perspective may mean discarding something really valuable. And that seems to be the case in sentence diagramming where, yes, if you treat it like an end all and total solution, you, you could go down a bad path. But if you don't use it at all, you're missing out on a really valuable uh, lens, as you put it. I think that's a great summary. Yeah, right. It, with so many things, a little bit of knowledge in an area goes a long, long way. And and I think it is important because one thing I like to emphasize is it doesn't mean we want to go down the route of subjectivity and say that any teaching method is equally valuable. It's um, always coming back to, I think, the essential, which is how do we know reality? and um, what are the tools that are going to be most effective and what can we prove actually works objectively? So um, I think that's an important caveat to put on it. Um, before we wrap up, I want to try and end on maybe something optimistic or just to see your sense of the future. Um, in, in your thesis, one of the things you speak about is a, a big challenge we face um, in education now is that we may be able to inspire the next generation of teachers to, you know, want to teach grammar. You know, hopefully maybe people have listened to this podcast and they're sold now. They want to learn grammar. And it's unfortunate, but many teachers have not received a rigorous grammar education. And so it presents a, a particular challenge in their ability to then deliver a rigorous grammar education. So I'm curious um, to, to hear your thoughts on your, your outlook on the future. and where what what advice you might give to somebody who wants to equip themselves so that they can effectively teach the subject yeah that's yeah i would say that i think looking at again my own background being in classical schools looking at that that particular movement within an education is is really encouraging to see how much hunger there is for it from parents and communities and and just how how receptive they are and and the need for it. Uh, and so part of that, of course, is, yeah, is finding faculty members for those schools. And then obviously, as a teacher, right, you can't give what you don't have, right? Um, the German philosopher, uh, Robert Speyman says, right, you, before you can, can teach, you've got to be a somebody first. So again, going back to what we said earlier, our formation as teachers is, is of the utmost importance. Mm. So I would say I'm really hopeful 
for the future, because as you have all of these classical schools taking off, uh, very often you have students graduating from them, going to colleges and feeling called, whether for their their vocation for life or for a season to, to come and, and come back and teach in a classical school and share that. So I think you're certainly getting more folks who are, are formed in, in the art of grammar and the other liberal arts coming into teaching, which is great. But then, hey, what do you do for, for folks who, you know, discover this later on? You know, maybe it's a parent who has been homeschooling their children, gets involved with a classical curriculum or a classical school. And it's like, OK, I don't have the background. What do I do? Honestly, pick up pick up some some there are great fun books out there. Um, there are funny ones about diagramming. Sister, Sister Bernadette's Barking Dog is a great read. Um and and just start to poke around, right? There's there is really no point too late in life to pick up English grammar. I, I think that's one of the the differences uh, of ease between teaching yourself grammar, so about your own language versus learning another language. It can be really hard to pick up another language later in life, uh, but it's not that hard to learn English grammar, and it's so worth it. Yeah. And one thing I can speak to from personal experience and just speaking to other people as well is sentence diagramming tends to be really effective for adults. Um, I've spoken to a number of people who, uh, and this was my experience too, who picked up grammar, you know, feeling like they had never been taught it in high school or, or elementary and sentence diagramming was a really effective way to do that. So we'll link to, um, uh, the book recommendation you just had and a few other resources we know of. That's really funny that her book is called, uh, what was it called? Um, Stories Sister of a Barking, Dog. Barking Dog. That's really, because my favorite book, the way I learned was Rex Barks by Phyllis Davenport. So yeah, yes. There's something, yeah, there's about, something about dogs, dogs barking. barking going out of grammar. <laughs> That's really funny. Um, well, I'm so thrilled that you joined us today to talk about uh, your experience with grammar and, and the value. Um, this was a great conversation. And yeah, I'm just so appreciative for you hopping on with us for as our first guest. Well, thank you both for having me. This has been great. Thank you so much, Thomas.